Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Well, welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea, await you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. While you're there, be sure and, you know, ask Andrea about her unborn and see if you can get a name, because I haven't got that yet either. We do have a terrific chat room. Uh, so, Ravinder, tell us all about it. We have a marvelous chat room, you know, a great group of people. I'm always learning something from them, and I think that's, that is the, the best value. You know, the, the things I learn and the friends that I make in the process, because we also chat offline, you know, afterwards on Facebook too. So there are some good, good relationships and good things to learn. So yeah, you can join our wonderful group just by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In this week's spotlight, I'd like to focus on the idea that our conscious minds have much less control than we think. For over 30 years now, I have researched the workings of the mind. Indeed, the reason our patented InterTalk technology exists is due to an earlier discovery that suggested the non-conscious provided the conscious mind with its alternatives. In other words, some stimuli might come along, and how we would react was not just a matter of, you know, fight and flight, it was actually alternatives written in the non-conscious. So, for example, if one were to see a stimulus as a threat, they would, instead of just reacting from fight or flight, actually react from a dispositional programming that exists in the subconscious. As such, one person might slow down to let someone into traffic, while another squeezes them out. One person can become angry at a driver's error while their neighbor smiles understandingly. And all of this behavior is a program executing itself while the conscious mind explains away, usually via rationalization, why you're behaving in the way you are. It's obvious then that the programming in the non-conscious mind should be of the sort we want. For if it's not, then our behavior will continually disappoint our best. This past week, a new study coming from San Francisco State University informed us once again of just how true this proposition is. Quoting from the research summary, quote, Consciousness, the internal dialogue that seems to govern one's thoughts and actions, is far less powerful than people believe, serving as a passive conduit rather than an active force that exerts control. Close quote. The study, which appeared in the June 22nd issue of the journal Behavioral and Brain Sciences, describes the action this way, and again I quote, An interpreter presents the information, but is not the one making any arguments or acting upon the knowledge that is shared. Similarly, 
the information we perceive in our consciousness is not created by conscious processes, nor is it reacted to by conscious processes. Close quote. Now, the model of the mind is evolving as technology provides an ever more transparent view of how our brains work. This new model is called the passive frame theory. Think about the conscious mind then from this perspective. A frame of film neither created nor illuminated by itself, ready to be viewed upon cue given the proper stimulus, but generated elsewhere in the non-conscious. In other words, the non-conscious has created the film frame, and some stimulus may illuminate that frame, but the conscious mind is but passively observing the frame, and yet it observes it as itself. I have emphasized the importance of owning your own controls for more than 30 years now, and that is simply not possible until and unless you own your own non-conscious processes. I urge you all today to undertake the greatest challenge of your life. Become mindful, and above all else, know yourself. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, I find the whole area just uh, fascinating. But what I was thinking about, right, as you were saying that, um, when it comes to owning your own your own thoughts, I think what what we can really do practically is have full respect for the unconscious and the power within. You were talking to our son just the other day about um, the intelligence in the world and the fact that our bodies can heal themselves. You know, you get a cut and you don't do anything. It, it heals itself. So when you start just having full respect and awe for all of these things that go on beneath our conscious awareness, you know, that they have, that they happen. If you, if you, have all for them and respect them and take care of them. So those things that we are aware of, you know, so healing yourself, well, yeah, eating correct foods is good. When it comes to your mind and your thinking process, well, you need to pay attention to what you allow to get in there. You can't control all of it because life goes on, but you can pay attention to what you watch on TV or who you talk to or, you know, the comments other people can Mate, because all of that stuff does get plugged in. The best thing you can do, in my view, is pay attention to your own thinking. Pay attention to your own self-talk. And when you hear that self-talk come in and it says something that is not in your best interest, it says, you know, you're not good enough or you're not smart enough or you can't do this. Well, you know, don't judge it and, and certainly don't resist it. Uh but indeed, evaluate it. Now, why would I have that thought? Where did that come from? You know, when was the first time I thought something like that? And and in this that process, you can uncover the origins. You can uncover the bite, if you will, that these kinds of negative thoughts have, and and you can you can alter them. But in addition, you have to. Pay attention to what you get into your mind. We can get ideas into our mind, and then we begin to fortify the idea. Mm-hmm. So we we see somebody do something, or we hear somebody say something, and we say, you know, I think this is what they meant by that. And the minute we form that, <laughs> then we begin to reinforce it, because everything we see from that point on in is coming through that lens. So all, all these predispositions that we have in our own mind, 
we need to take time out to evaluate them honestly as well. Otherwise, as you know in the new book, Gotcha, the Subordination of Free Will, you will simply end up being puppeted and believe that you're doing it out of your own free will. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Last week our guest was Alan Yugano, and we discussed his book, The Death Experience. Deborah wrote, Good show this afternoon. I couldn't quite grasp that perspective on what's considered right or wrong culturally and what may come across as evil doings or choices. Maybe it all is considered relative by the doer, but I think I'll keep my mind on this side of that fence. Well, you know what? That goes for me as well, Deborah. I simply cannot accept that virtue, goodness, right and wrong depend upon your culture. Period. Full stop. I, uh, well, to me, it, it can sound so sweet to so many to assert that everyone is exactly where they're supposed to be, doing only what they're supposed to do, perfect regardless of their actions, because it's all either their destiny or their culture. But this sort of thinking in my mind is only a seductive way to justify and therefore implicitly approve of any behavior that dissolves responsibility for right action. Because after all, under that definition, all action is approved. You have thoughts on that one, Ravinder? Oh, yeah, we've certainly discussed that one many a time. No, I actually think the real search for spirituality, I mean, it's a journey, there isn't a destination there, but the real search is finding the ultimate virtue, the one thing that holds regardless of circumstances, and I, I do believe that it's there, and I think that is our challenge. Yeah, well, and I and I agree, and of course I, I tend to think that wherever, however you find this foundation, it is going to have to do with human rights. It, it, and when you mm-hmm. deprive a human being of their inalienable, I know we had this discussion, <laughs> and I know that, you know, I, I come down on the side of inalienable, despite the fact that unalienable is the official, I agree with our president in that sense. Inalienable <laughs> makes more sense. You know, it is it is their inalienable right um, to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, I guess that kind of says it. You said it in your newsletter this week. Uh, and when you deprive that, I I have great difficulty in finding it spiritual. Now, you might have just cause and maybe we're taking a homicidal maniac off the street and depriving them of liberty but you know you have to be really careful in what you call just cause here yep okay judy wrote provocative enlightenment this is i believe there are no absolutes but there are realities created by our thinking and so this too shall pass (laughs) cd wrote My maternal grandmother had an NDE in 1972. She had no name for it. She just said she felt warm and surrounded by the most love she could possibly imagine. She did not share the experience for years and years. I wonder at times if the more information about NDEs come out, that a script for people's experience is not being generated in consciousness, a meme of sorts. I have to agree, CB, and I fail to be able to accept... uh, Yugano's notion that the validity of an NDE is based on the similarity to other NDE reports. 
Mark remarked, It really bothers me when people use quantum physics as evidence to support their metaphysical positions. Well, as one with a son and a niece who are both physicists, I totally agree with you, Mark. Do you want to comment on that one, Rav? Oh, I totally agree with that. I mean, there are those people out there that will grab anything that sounds scientific and say that that proves what it is that they, whatever it is that they're they're presenting at the time. So, yeah, they can throw out terms. And, you know, for a fact, they've got no clue what it is they're saying. It just sounds cool. We, yeah, a little bit of baffled, (laughs) you know. That's right. Okay, moving on. Victoria wrote, I love your emails. I agree with your comments about asking. What I have found working with students is they need information that gets them over the fear of asking. I have taught thousands of children to overcome this fear, And I'm currently training teachers, parents, and students how to become powerful self-advocates through inquiry. I have quoted you on many occasions and love quoting your work and referring others to your website. Thanks for all you do. Now, if you're not receiving our free newsletter, don't miss another issue. Just go to eldentaylor.com and sign up today, and you can look at the old issues. You know, as I said, Ravinder has a, a, a wonderful piece out there right this minute honoring America and America's birthday. All right, finally, Chief Yellowfeather wrote, Dear Eldon, we've known each other for quite a few years, and I value your friendship. When you gave the Intertalk programs to me for my tribe, I was grateful and knew that I had so many people that needed them. I was beyond surprised when one of the people that would need them the most turned out to be me. Last year at this time, I was so sick I was fighting for my life. It turned out that I had four blood clots in my lungs, and the largest clot was in my heart, keeping it from beating properly. I underwent emergency surgery, and because no one has ever lived through the surgery with so many clots, the doctors told my husband they'd do what they could and have to take it from there. Because of the body scans they put me through before and after surgery, they discovered a mass in my uterus, but decided to hold off until I could get stronger. So less than a year after having open heart and lung surgery, I underwent a biopsy that revealed stage 1 cancer. And I had to have a complete hysterectomy because it had also gone into my cervix. Even though the cancer was removed, I had to also have radiation treatments five days a week for six weeks to catch any cancer cells that may be present. Why am I going into my whole medical history, you might ask? Well... Because through it all, I had my intertalk programs by my side day and night. I spent nearly two months in the hospital after the pulmonary embolism surgery, and the intertalk programs helped me heal and stay sane. Then I started using the cancer program when they diagnosed me, and I knew I was facing more surgery and radiation after that. I used them religiously and still use them today. The visualization program gave me the strength to lay on that table while the radiation did its job. I have claustrophobia, so the phobias program helped me with that. I used the pre- and post-operative program to give me the courage to undergo surgery, and the cancer remission and self-healing is natural programs so that they could speak to my body and mind and put me in the best possible place to be healed by God. The other programs I'm using are pretty self-explanatory. Power of the Spirit, Relaxation, Courage, and Stress. I thank you, Eldon, for developing these programs and for giving them to me. They are definitely a godsend. I am living proof of the power of faith, prayer, and positive intertalk. Sincerely, Woman Chief, Yellow Feather, Feather, Chappaquiddick Tribe. 
it's a very moving letter for me. And, you know, I want to thank you, Chief, uh, for sharing and for your candor, and God bless. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly do appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, Bringing Your Soul to Light with Linda Backman. What are your thoughts on pre-life preparation? Do we choose our parents, set up our trials, create our health path, arrange our relationships, and so forth before we come into this life? Are we just acting out a program and maybe, you know, all this talk about the conscious mind not knowing what what's really going on, the non-conscious doing the dictating? Is that some action outside of the body, you know, some oversoul that's dictating it to us? Is there such a thing as soul splits and extraplanetary incarnations? Is there something like a soul archetype? Why do we incarnate and do we have past lives after all? I mean, if so, how many of them do we have and are they all as humans? Enter today's guest. Dr. Linda Backman, licensed psychologist and regression therapist, has been in private practice for more than 35 years. Linda has earned academic degrees from the University of Oregon, University of North Carolina, and Northern Arizona University. Since 1993, Dr. Backman has guided individuals in soul regression hypnotherapy to access their past and between lives. In this way, she assists people to more fully recognize who they are as a soul throughout repetitive lifetimes and during the time we are not incarnate. She is the author of Bringing Your Soul to Light, Healing Through Past Lives, The Time Between, and The Evolving Soul, Spiritual Healing Through Past Life Exploration. So on that, let's get her in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Linda Backman. Thank you so much, Eldon. It's a pleasure to be with you. Well, we're glad you joined us. You know, what we like to do, Dr. Backman, first is learn a little bit about who our guest is. I mean, we want three things from them. What is the message? Who is the messenger, and how do we use it? So to that end, please tell us about your life as a young person. I mean, were you popular, a loner, involved in sports or other activities, a cheerleader, religious as a child, and so forth? Tell us about young Linda, please. Okay, that's a, that's a lovely question, and generally people don't ask me that, so that's I'm happy to answer. Um, well, let's see. Um, so I'm in my late. 60s, so we'll go back a long, you know, a fairly long way. Um, I was raised, Eldon, in Colorado. Um, I was raised in a conservative Jewish family, conservative, conservative meaning that part of, of, of Judaism. Mm-hmm. Uh, my father was a business owner. My, my father was part of a very large family, so I grew up around a lot of aunts and uncles and cousins. Um, my grandparents all were um, basically Colorado Jewish pioneers who came to this country over a hundred years ago. Mm. Um, I was a good student. I was a make no waves kind of person. I I loved music. Um, I was not athletic. I had to learn as an older person to become uh, athletic and, and uh, exercise and take care of my body in that way. Um, boy, you would have, actually, here's a perfect, maybe to just pull the pieces together, um, Eldon, I want to ask a very dear cousin of mine who's four years older and knew me basically from day one. And I said to my cousin, I said, so what, 
was I like as a child? Mm-hmm. And he said to me, and I, I love him dearly, this was, I did not feel judged by his statement. He said, Linda, you had a mute personality. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, I really do think that's true. I think there are many reasons for that. Um, I was the child in the family that was supposed to be, um, you know, walk down the middle of the road, uh, be agreeable, and as I said before, not make waves. So I had to learn how to be me, which over time, yes, I did learn. But so that's kind of a thumbnail sketch um, of my of my child person that I once was. All right, so when did you go to, I mean, you went straight from high school into university. You, you know, tell us about your educational background because okay. you have attended more than one university. When did you meet your significant other and, uh, how, how, you know, how does all of that come full forward to Dr. Backman today? Yeah, that's a beautiful way of, of, of melding it all together. Um, okay. So I went to university straight out of high school. I initially attended the University of Colorado at Boulder. Um, I had at the, to meld this with, with my, my, my spouse and how that all came to be. I've been married 48 years. Um, wow. Congratulations. I, yeah, <laughs> I know. That, you know, I'm not 95, but you know, yes, I have been married 48 years and have a, I believe a true partnership with my spouse. Um, and this is all going to fit together uh, spiritually as well as we move forward. So I met my husband on a blind date when I was 17 and he was 18 years old. He was a, a freshman cadet at the United States Air Force Academy. I was completing my last year of high school. Um, you know, we were fixed up by friends and, um, you know, not quite exactly, but for the most part, we've been together ever since. Um, oh, cool. Uh, so I met him. Um, I went off to college about 90 miles north of where I grew up. He left the Air Force Academy at the end of his sophomore year um, for all kinds of reasons, including he realized he wasn't going to be able to be a pilot <laughs> after they uh, determined uh, what his depth perception was. He uh-huh. didn't have adequate depth perception to be a pilot. Along with that, he was recruited to play football, and he injured his knee very badly in his freshman year at the at the Air Force Academy. Uh. So he went home to the University of Oregon and entered um, school there. Um, and by the time I was a junior in um, college, I moved to Eugene, Oregon, and matriculated at U of O. Um, and we married at the end of my junior year. So. Um, my studies, um, my first degree, so lots of, lots of going to school here. Um, I have a master's degree in speech pathology and audiology. That goes, you know, way back in, in my life. I worked as a speech pathologist for a year or so and decided I just didn't love it. Um, I was, I was, uh, getting married around that time period and it was time to start a family, which I was very eager to do. So, we had our first child in um, 1969, and that is our son, our married son, um, who lives in San Francisco. And then, as my life moved along, um, I was pregnant with our second baby, 
all babies in my in my life were planned. Dr. Backman, I'm going to ask you to hold it. This is a romantic okay. story. I want to hear it all, but I don't yeah. want to get kicked out by the computer and we have a hard break. So That's we come fine. back. Let's pick it up where you are, okay? Perfect. We're speaking with Dr. Linda Backman about her life, work, and books, The Evolving Soul and Bringing Your Soul to Light. To learn more about Dr. Backman, visit her website at Ravenheart. That's R-A-V-E-N-H-E-A-R-T. Ravenheart Center, one word, dot com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Someday we'll find it, the rainbow connection. 
and welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Linda Backman about her life, work, and books, The Evolving Soul and Bringing Your Soul to Life. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that, you know, has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. Music can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, skill, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In fact, according to a study I read just about a month ago now, you can determine one social class by their favorite music. I'm not sure I accept that, but okay. As such, there can be a great deal of self-disclosure in the selection of one's favorite music. All right, we just played Rainbow Connection, performed by Sarah McLaughlin. Why is this one special to you, Dr. Backman, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Great question. You know, I forgot, Eldon, that you had asked for music. So I was listening to this song, and it's like, oh, I love that song. So, you know, <laughs> I forgot that, <laughs> which, is, which is probably just perfectly fine. Um, I love a well, lot of Well, you're a psychologist, so you know what a thematic apperception test is. And now that you're not prepared, let's hear it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Um, so uh, the Rainbow Connection is such a beautiful song because it talks about that there is something more than this life, this body. It talks about something that implies that we are a soul living one life to the next, that what we have here on earth and what we see with our human eyes is not all there is. Um, And along with that, I love music. I think music is a very direct connection to our intuitive capabilities. Um, I have clients who talk about music. Um, we'll get into this as we move along, but I have clients who talk about music that they experience when I guide them in soul regression. So there apparently is sound, which does not surprise me, in the higher realm. Yeah, nor I. No, I, it, it would disappoint me if that were not the case. So, <laughs> me too. Before the break, you were... Um, you were sharing with us uh, a bit of your life, and we, we left off with you're pregnant with your second child. Please pick it up. Okay. So I think this is where, Eldon, my work um, slowly began to evolve. I, had, I didn't understand it back then, but so when I was pregnant with our second baby, this is back in the early 70s, um, it was a, a, a kind of a touch-and-go sort of pregnancy. It was one day I might miscarry and the next day I might not. No way to know at that point. It was pre-ultrasound, uh, pre-ultrasound era, and so the doctors had no idea what was going on. And at 26 weeks of an average um, 40-week pregnancy, I delivered our second baby, our second son. Ooh. He lived a few hours and passed. Well, I suddenly, at age 25, learned what probably most of us learn, um, and that is that we're not invincible. We don't have power and control over everything in our life. Um, And so, essentially, I learned what it's like to have a child die. Six weeks later, I didn't understand what was going on back then, but I was experiencing classic depression. And so I ended up um, in, a, in a psychiatrist's office for the first time in my life that my OB sent me to, and I had 
an experience that didn't make sense to me. The psychiatrist said, um, well, here's some medication, take this medication. And I said to the psychiatrist, um, and I'm sure he's a lovely person long, long ago back then, um, I said, all right, I'll take this medication, but I need to talk about what I've just experienced. And he said, no, no, I'll see you in two weeks. Come back in two weeks and just take your pills. So I think I went back maybe one more time, took the medication, knew at some level, not understanding psychotherapy back then, um, knew I needed to talk, and I ended up fortunately finding a different um, psychiatrist who did therapy, did group work, and I began to dig into my own personal issues, stopped taking the medication. I have nothing against medication over my many years of doing general psychology work in private practice. I think at times certain medications are sure. extremely useful. But, you know, so I dug into my grief and I began working on my grief and I came to understand what happens when we're grieving, what happens when a child dies, and I ended up back, uh, maybe a couple years later, I ended up back in a university graduate program studying um, at, at the master's level, getting my degree in counseling because I found psychotherapy fascinating. I also co-established a public agency that still exists in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's a United Way agency for education about the death of children and therapy for families. Um, who've had a child pass. I still wasn't spiritual back then. I was just passionate about understanding, understanding death, dying, and grief work. Then fast forward, um, I went back to school again. I gained my doctoral degree in counseling psychology, became a licensed psychologist, and then I was in a group practice in um, Arizona. My original colleague, um, was diagnosed at the age of 30 with a type of lung cancer that he was told he would not survive. And after massive treatment in 1993, my original colleague with whom I built this four-person psychological psychiatric group practice, um, mm -hmm. back then I would have said died, passed from the disease that he had in 1993. And that's when spirituality began for me. Now, I know I'm giving you a long story. Do you want no, to that's, it's a, that's a wonderful story. It's a wonderful, wonderful story. And it also, you know, it's important to understand where you're coming from, I believe, as we listen then to how you interpret. Um, you know, we know what a convex and a concave lens is. And we know that if we look through the convex, we get a different image than if we look through a concave. Well, you just gave us a pretty good image about who Dr. Backman was. And that will assist us in interpreting the lens that we're going to hear tell us these stories. Let me ask you this, though. I well remember agreeing not to deal with things such as past lives as a part of the certification with Harry Aaron's Ethical Association of Hypnosis, where I did my initial training uh, many, many years ago. But then I had a client spontaneously begin recounting information from prior lives, actually speaking in Chinese, and uh, there was no way this young Italian girl could have learned Chinese. And I had to resign the association, find another means for certification. At that time, I was a forensic hypnotist, and so I really, you know, I mean, I didn't look at hypnosis as having 
any access, let alone be the doorway that it is, into so many things spiritual. How did you get started in, I mean, here you are, you're, you're a Jewish uh, background, you're, you're, you know, maybe you're a little spiritual because of the death of your colleague, but what, what started you in incorporating regression therapy in your practice? Perfect. That's easy to answer. And I believe, and we'll talk more about this, that our lives, um, to a degree, are planned in advance, and I'll illuminate that in a minute. So I think all these pieces and parts, many of these pieces and parts, were happening because that was what was being planned at the soul level. So at any rate, in the spring of 1993, my colleague passed. Um, it was very difficult to watch someone so young go through this, this nasty debilitating illness. Almost immediately, within 24 hours of his passing, I started having spiritual experiences that I'd never had before. I was 46, so kind of when we're 46, we think, oh, well, I, you know, I kind of have it all figured out by now. (laughs) Well, I didn't. And um, the bottom line is two things happened for me right after he passed. I started sensing him being present with me, I had no doubt that his energy, I could, I could sense him. This was completely new to me, and he was communicating to me intuitively. I'd never experienced that before. At the same time, I knew what I was feeling. Along with that, I, I had skimmed one book about past lives about a year before his passing. It, a client that I was working with on grief issues came in and handed me um, a book about past lives, and she said, oh, Linda, you have to read this. This will be so useful for me, and maybe you'll like it. And I took it home, Eldon. I skimmed it, and all I remember is that oh, I just thought, well, this is kind of interesting. When my colleague passed, along with the intuitive uh, download I was sensing from my colleague, I started getting images in my mind, particularly when I got in bed at night and closed my eyes. I started experiencing images of what I knew were past life scenes, and my colleague was someone in those past lives. So I turned to my husband, and this is an additional, I think, very important piece. I turned to my husband. At that point, we'd probably been together 20 or 25 years. My my husband's work career was as a university professor and administrator. So, you know, pretty grounded person, (laughs) that sort of thing. I turned to my husband, Earl, and who knew my colleague well. And I said, you know how sad we are that, that, that my colleague has passed. And I said, but I have to tell you what's going on. And if you think I'm crazy, please just tell me you think I'm crazy because I don't know what to do with this. And I explained to my husband what I was experiencing. And honestly, he calmly looked at me and said, okay. And I said, wait, wait, why are, you know, why? Oh, just okay. And he said, well, apparently I, I had repressed my childhood memories until now. And he said, when I was a boy growing up, I spontaneously remembered my past lives. I remembered in particular that I was a man from India, and I told no one because I figured they'd all think I was crazy in the middle 50s. So he said, until now, I forgot. He said, I don't think what you're telling me is crazy at all. Let's go learn more about it. And that just gave me the opening, the trust. And I just began reading and taking training and just learning all I could learn. I'm a very 
I love to read and study and meld together knowledge and that sort of thing. Um, I just, I had to find grounding. Um, and I'll just say one more quick thing about grounding. One thing I did within a week of my colleague's passing as I was receiving this intuitive download is I thought, gosh, you know, I need to find a medium or a channel in the community where I live. And I thought, oh, but I don't want the rest of the community to know that Linda, the psychologist, has gone to a medium or a channel. So I was very, very shy and afraid that people would think I was, you know, you might say wacky. But I, I found I found a channel. I scheduled an appointment with her a few days later, and she began to tell me some of the things that I was intuiting that I did not tell her about in regard to my colleague. And so that helped my left brain not think I was, you know, sort of losing my mind, which I right. knew I wasn't, but right. I needed validation. How how wonderful, how interesting. Let, let, let's talk a minute about your method, and then let's get into some of the specifics. Uh, you know, when I was practicing forensic hypnosis, we learned very, very quickly about the power of suggestion. So as such, when we questioned a potential witness, we would be very careful not to suggest anything. In other words, uh, you know, we we would not ask a question such as, what was the man wearing, even if we knew it was a man. Instead, we would say something like, uh, please describe what you saw. Because by asking a direct question, we were suggesting that the perpetrator was a male, and that alone would invalidate the witness's credibility in a courtroom. So here's my question to you. How do you avoid the suggestion that a past life potential is even possible with a client? And further, how do you lead the subject to their past lives without ever suggesting to them anything about it? So I want to be sure. I understand your second question, Eldon, but your your first question, are you saying how do we validate what comes forward from the client? No, no, what I'm saying is, you know, somebody comes into your office, uh, Dr. Backman, and, and you say, let's do past life regression and uh, see who you were in, in a past life. You have suggested that there is a past life. And, you know, many of the critics will immediately approach that and say, look, you know, just that suggestion gives rise to a form of confabulation. You know all about the Bridie Murphy right. stuff. So, and, and that, and, and, and that invalidates to the skeptic, uh, the very nature of, of everything that follows from it. So my first question is, how do you approach this without suggesting that this person has actually lived a past life, or do you? And my second question then is, once you have begun this process, how do you, what, what safeguards do you use to protect from suggesting that right. they might have been something in that prior life? Okay. Um, let me just dive in slowly. So. Good. In the beginning, uh, in the beginning of learning how to guide past life regression, and as we move along, we'll talk about the difference between past life regression and between lives regression, because I, I, um, I guide two types of, of regression. Right. In the beginning of learning past life regression, I, of course, I, I maintained my general practice. Um, it took me years to shift more fully into what you might call soul-based work. Um, 
I honestly don't have a concern that there's something wrong with suggesting the term past life okay. because I, I have no I have no doubt I can try to explain that as to the fact that we have past lives and I don't you know I wish someone could follow me around and sit and listen to clients as I guide the clients and then I think it would make more sense perhaps to someone listening um, to this program that's skeptical um, so by by virtue of just saying we've lived before that has nothing to do in my opinion with the content of we've lived before so I don't concern myself honestly with with using that term and today my practice is all tied to regression and soul-based counseling so I don't I don't I no longer have a general conventional psychotherapy practice when people seek my work um, they come to me because they know that I guide two types of regression and also offer soul-based counseling um, and that's why they <laughs> that's why they they come to me so um, okay. I, I don't worry honestly about using the term past life and I, I don't okay. know if that answers your question no no that's that's good you know i mean the bottom line comes down to uh how you do how you get your information and and so no i i'm, I'm not being critical i'm just aware of how skeptics approach this uh this subject and uh and you know if what you're saying is okay everybody that comes through the door comes through the door because they know who i am and they know i'm going to do soul counseling and they are genuinely interested in um, exploring their past lives or their between lives because they believe there's you know conflict from that or something is impacting their life currently today that's straight up that's that's fine that tells us you know that just tells us the lens through which we get the information well what happened for me is i began to research my own past lives as well as guide clients um and you know there are a lot of clients who will say to me and 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 trainees too i train people in how to guide past life regression, and how to guide between lives regression. Um, and my absolute, absolute cardinal rule is do not lead the witness. So when, when I teach people, I say don't put ideas in the mind of the client. And when I guide a regression and the details and the emotion and the connection with life today is so clear-cut for the client, it's hard to argue with that. I mean, you know, we could spend hours, I could, you know, offer some stories about spontaneous I'm going to ask you for some stories, but, you know, and I just want to dismiss this uh, notion real quickly. I I know that you're aware that... um, you know, the skeptics will look at a lot of this and they'll say, you know, look, there are probably a thousand people right now in America who can remember being a famous person in a past life. Right. And that famous person is all the same famous person. Correct. So how is that possible? <laughs> and, I, and I know that you're aware of that. Right. And, and I know that you're also aware that there are many psychotherapists who will use past life regression that don't actually believe in reincarnation or they don't care, but they nevertheless realize how valid it is 
to uncover material through whatever means that has a healing importance to to a client. So I, I just wanted to kind of get that out of the way so that we know, you know, what we're dealing with here now. So you're a soul counselor, and 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 I have no issues with that at all. I think that's marvelous that you have gone on and done that. Uh, your book essentially informs the readers that our souls are mending, evolving, and that is the purpose underlying reincarnation. Let's pick that up. What do you mean by mending? I, I completely believe, based on listening to clients for 22 years, about both their past lives and their the time between lives, their soul content, lifetime to lifetime, that we come into body to evolve as a soul. We live one lifetime to the next. It's a little bit like going to school, first grade, second grade, third grade, and so forth. And it's a bit like if we think about, if you will, soul school, let's just say soul school is, you know, first through sixth grade. We don't get to pass from first grade to second grade until we've achieved a certain level of, we might say, growth and wisdom at the soul level. So we come into body to evolve. We come into body not only to evolve our own individual soul, but we also come into body to have an impact ultimately on (laughs) needed evolution on this planet. And so I believe that each life has purpose, or we might say purposes, and we are coming in to learn, to grow, to expand. It's a little bit like Maslow's hierarchy, if you will. And, and just to explain for the readers, so Maslow's hierarchy is a, is, is a framework, a construct of the base of Maslow's hierarchy. It's a pyramid, and as, as I'm needs. sure you know, Eldon. Uh, and pyramid the, of needs, yeah. It's the foundation of making sure we have food, water, shelter, it's a basic foundation of managing our life. But then as okay. we progress, And Dr. Backman, need... again, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to ask you to okay. hold it there. Uh, the book is The Evolving Soul. It is a great read. Actually, they're both great reads, The Evolving Soul and Bringing Your Soul to Light uh, by Dr. Linda Backman. You can check them out at Barnes & Noble or Amazon Online. Now, we have a video for you during the break titled 20 Celebrities in Their Past Lives. You're going to want to watch this one, and you can catch it by joining the chat room. Just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Linda Backman about her life, work, and books, The Evolving Soul and Bringing Your Soul to Life. Now, Dr. Backman, we just played your second musical choice. It was a very good year, sung by the one and only Mr. Frank Sinatra. And I love this piece, and I I would be perplexed to tell anybody why. So please (laughs) tell us, why is this one special to you? Um. Basically, Eldon, I believe that events happen in our life with purpose. And so if if listeners think back on their life and think about those pivotal moments in their life, meeting someone, and even pivotal moments that are not so easy, like someone passes or um, a divorce occurs, no matter what it is, um, if we look back on our life and say, well, when I was, you know, I guess what triggered it for me initially is when I was 17, I met my husband, Earl, and um, we have uncovered many past lives together that explain all kinds of pieces and parts of our relationship 
um, that were unexplained without tracking past lives. Um, oh, it might be useful. Let me just share one quick oh, piece do, because do. Yeah. the listeners wonder, well, what is Linda talking about? Um, long story short, I met Earl on a blind date on a Saturday night, Air Force Academy cadet, as I said earlier. Um, Earl invited me to come out to the Air Force Academy the following weekend for the um, end-of-the-year freshman ball, the special dance that happens at the completion of the freshman year. I accepted his invitation and proceeded to, you know, prepare and find a dress and do all that kind of thing. In the middle of the week, I had what my parents thought was appendicitis. And my my mother and father took me to the emergency room early one morning, sometime in the middle of that week. Didn't turn out to be appendicitis. Uh, they sent me home, and ultimately the pain I had went away. Years later, I, um, in knowing Earl and knowing about past lives, we uncovered the details of a past life where, uh, this is thousands of years ago, where Earl and I were betrothed. He was the head general of an army, and he essentially, trying to make this simple, my aunt did not want me to marry him because he was of a prestigious family, and she didn't want me to marry this, you know, head military guy. So Mm -hmm. she arranged for his men, the men that, that he was the superior officer for, the men killed him from behind. His own men killed him with a sword from behind. I, as I've uncovered past lives and how they show up in our life, I believe that event with the abdominal pain for for me was my fear that if I continued to see this person that I felt like I really, you know, melded with very well, even very quickly, that I believe that was a past life memory. Sympathetic reaction to the memory. Incredible. You know, I see you, doctor, as an investigator, you know, on the front line. And I want to explore some of the more controversial issues with you, if I might, having to do with reincarnation. Um, you know, I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that there are past lives. I think you do a marvelous job with your books going through a number of things. But there are issues that sit out there that generally get ignored, you know. So if we can, we've had several different guests on this show, and, and we've tried to sort through a couple of things. For example, there are those who insist that evildoers, that is what we see as the evildoers here on earth, people such as Joseph Mengele, uh, Stalin, Hitler, were indeed only carrying out actions that they agreed to in a pre-life on the other side. In short, this notion asserts that they agreed to be evil in order to teach us things like forgiveness and other higher principles. And as such, they were never really you know, truly committing a an evil act. They were just, you know, being the bad guy in the play. What say you with respect to this idea? Well, I'm asked that question a lot as I travel around giving talks and, and that sort of thing. My take on the Hitlers, the Saddam Husseins, and the Mengele's of the world is that it, that evil behavior was not scripted. It was not pre-planned, 
I call that, and I've asked this question many times in regression um, of higher guides, that that's going off script. That's free will choice. And I don't disagree that humanity can learn and progress from those kinds of experiences, but I honestly believe, um, you know, Mengele, for example, free will choice to commit heinous action. Right, and I totally concur. I mean, I, and, and, and it's good to hear. I mean, many investigators come down on one side, as you just have, um, but then there are some of those that, you know, they hang to these ideas. So let's deal with karma then. The idea of karma suggests that there are consequences in our actions, of course. Karma-laden consequences. If everyone is perfect right where they are, carrying out their scripts, another popular notion, you know, uh, is karma irrevocable? Well, I don't believe everyone is perfect um, right where they are. I Good. believe we, before we come into body, we basically, I like to use the word blueprint or script, a plan for our upcoming incarnation. And part of the plan is related to cleaning up past actions that need to be shifted. Our guides give us almost innumerable opportunities to do that, both within a life and lifetime to lifetime. I do believe in karma. I I don't believe, like some people will say to me, well, Linda, isn't God perfect? And it, Linda, isn't the soul perfect? So why would we have anything to clean up? Right. And I suggest to people that that's a, we might say, a westernized notion of perfection and I don't believe at any level there is perfection that I believe the universe is constantly evolving and progressing just as we as souls are constantly evolving and progressing. So I, we come into body with karma. Uh, if we didn't have karma, based on what I have learned client after client after client, we wouldn't be incarnating. Okay. <clears throat> Thank you again. Now let me ask you about Dharma. Dharma is typically thought of as a duty to right action. The Bhagavad Gita, for example, tells the story of Krishna teaching Arjuna about duty. Right. Arjuna doesn't want to lead his army against a so-called enemy who once were their friends, family, relatives. But Krishna makes it clear that it's his sacred duty because of his birthright and subsequent position. Do you see duty or dharma in this way? I mean, is honor, ritual duty, does this all tie itself up with good and evil in our interpretation of what dharma is? I see dharma as the purposeful intention, if we just speak about current life, since everybody that's listening, including you and me, are in our current life. I see Dharma as what were those life intentions, those, you might say, soul accomplishments that were intended, that we agreed to with our guides before we came into body? And what are we meant to, I don't like to use the word achieve because everybody thinks of achieve as how many years of education or, you know, how much money do you make or something like that. It's progressing um, in our life by accomplishing our life 
intention. A quick example, um, and it's easier to, for me to use myself, and that there are many, many, many cases in my books that people can read, but I know that I had a past life mm, about 150 or so years ago, maybe 125 years ago, where I was a socialite woman that lived in Philadelphia. I was a very neglectful spouse, and I was a very neglectful mother. I had two children. And I know a lot about the details of that life. I was more hung up on my position and my aristocratic and social and political role, and I ignored the needs of my family. And I won't go into further details about that, but I needed to do some karmic healing as time went along. Now, I don't know that my current life is the only opportunity. I've had lives in between, but um, I do believe that aspects of my current life are tied to um, healing that, um, you know, it was all about me kind of life um, about 125 years ago. So I just want to make sure and I clarify this if I can, and I'll come right back to you and your husband. So your husband in a life was a general, he commanded an army. Correct. His obligation, his duty then, by nature of that position, assuming that he acquired that position because it was a part of his path, his dharma, his right. process, would might have been to slay an enemy. And that act would have been the honorable act given his dharma. Right. Have I got that right? I, I, I think did. yes. I mean, that, that now you're opening up kind of a big and fascinating topic of soul archetype, but... That's the idea behind this show, Doctor. <laughs> That's perfect. That's perfect. Um, well, I know that if you had my husband on the line along with me, what he would say to you is that he has had many, many, many lives. He's what we might call a warrior soul, which I can explain. But he's had many, many lives as a military soldier, you know, that kind of, um, of commitment and activity, and that he raped and pillaged and killed, and that needed to be healed and cleaned up, that that, technically speaking, is not, it's not dharmic to kill someone. It may be dharmic to be a warrior for a cause that you believe in that is a purposeful um, soul and human humanitarian evolutionary cause. But he would tell you, and I fully agree, that killing people is not uh, dharma. Right. Well, but, but it could be. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if our dharma, if our path is to be a warrior for a holy cause. Right. Uh, and we are in a position forced to defend that cause, and that leads to taking someone's life, not as an act of, uh, you know, rape or pillage or senselessness, but as an act of duty, then that becomes a dharmic consequence, does it not? So does it make sense to think that I got karma for that, that I now need to clean up? I think it does, simply because I don't think killing people solves anything. 
I don't so, think it does either, but it seems to be very circular in its nature then, this whole... Go ahead. Yeah, no, that... I mean, obviously, his agreement when he came into life as a warrior, as a soldier, was to be a soldier. Uh, you know, it's it, it obviously hard to split apart because that... The question I think would be is, when we think about Dharma, was he agreeing to come into body as a soldier and to end the life of others because they didn't agree with the cause that he supported? Um, well, let's let's translate this. Let's make it really relevant, okay? We're about, next week is the, not next week, it's this week, the 4th of July weekend, okay? Right. And, you know, we're celebrating the birth of this country. And in order for us to be an independent country, people had to die. And the fact of the matter is we have troops serving this country right now so that we can have our freedom. And our freedom is just simply not free. That's that simple. So we have men and women that are out there dying in order to see that we are free. And they're doing this out of their duty, their obligation in their mind. It may be self-imposed and it may be enculturated, but their obligation to their fellow soldier, to, to this country, and to everything this country stands for. So, all right, they came into this life, their dharma to become a soldier. And they're forced, in order to protect our freedom, to take another life. And maybe the life they're taking is of some individual about to kill or behead a, a small child. Okay? Have they got karma for that, Doctor? Well, I guess I'll start by saying I don't agree that in order to um, create, you know, this country that today we call the United States of America... I don't agree that killing was required. There could have been other ways of people who wish to come to the quote-unquote new world to create um, a different country, to gain, you know, freedom, to, of course, there's religious freedom that was a strong part of why people came um, and created the, the original colonial um life in um, the United States, but I, you know, humbly... You know, Gandhi, led, Gandhi led a, a non-violent revolution. That's right. And people died. They died as a result of the non-violence. They were beaten to death by British soldiers, and that was all filmed. So, I, you know, I love your book, I love your work, but I, I think it's a lofty notion to think that the, you know, this country would have become the an independent country without the necessity to withdraw from British rule. Well, let's leave that, okay? We're, we're <laughs> okay. in a secular place. Let's just leave that. Okay. Let's go on. Okay. The Hindu belief gives rise to gods, plural, or perhaps, as some scholars insist, a god with many different attributes in the same sense that Jewish god has many attributes. It's set out by the 22 sacred letter energies, you know, right. and, and you know that well. Uh, so, still there is a creator, or a god, or even gods, but with Buddhism we have an atheistic tradition. Now, both 
Buddhism and Hinduism hold reincarnation principles. From what you have learned from your work, your regression work, God or no God, creator or no creator? Uh, okay. I, I didn't realize you were going to pause at that point. So you're saying, is there... Well, Buddhism is an atheist faith, but they right. believe in reincarnation. Right. Hinduism is not atheistic. They believe right. there are many gods and or a god with right. many attributes. Okay. I understand. I understand. So the question is, based on what you have learned, is there a creator in the sense that we would hold a you know a god, a Christian, a Jewish, the Hindu, or is it as the Buddhists put it? You know. There really isn't a creator. We're all just aspects of a of a whole consciousness destined to return, escape the wheel of moksha, and mm-hmm. be reabsorbed. Okay. Um, and I'll just preface my answer by saying that when I give responses to your questions or anybody's questions, I base it on 22 years of listening to lots and lots of clients where I don't put ideas in their mind. They tell me what happens at the point of dying. They tell me about the afterlife. And I look at where are the commonalities in the information that that comes out. And I love that. That makes you the perfect investigator for these questions. And and I love that you said you see me as an investigator. I, I agree. I see myself as a case study by case study by case study investigator. So, to answer your question, my understanding is that we evolve in body, and as we sort of, we might say, climb the ladder of evolution or climb the ladder of gaining wisdom, we become capable of serving as a spiritual guide ourselves, whether we continue to incarnate or we've reached the point where we no longer incarnate. And the levels of of wisdom that happen for us as a soul, we might say move to a higher and higher and higher frequency. I do believe, and I've heard it many times from clients, there is um, a higher force, a higher uh, body of wisdom. You know, some people call it God. Um, I would prefer to call it God's. You know, I was raised Jewish and I'm still very culturally Jewish, but I have a much broader viewpoint than just, you know, believing in the construct of one Western religion. Um, I believe there are many different capable higher beings that have, (laughs) that can only work through those of us who are in body on earth to create progress on this planet. So, I am not, I, I fully believe there are beings of higher wisdom. Sometimes I use different terminology. In the East, they, one of the terms that is often used is the Manu, and another term that is used is the Solar Logos. And so, you know, if I'm with my Jewish relatives, I talk about God, Elohim, Shekhinah, um, those kinds of, of, of terminology. But sure. bottom line to your question is I do believe there are higher levels of of soul, of wisdom that no longer incarnate. 
So let me let me see if I can distill what you said and distill it correctly. I am reminded of a principle of faith that exists for the Mormon Church, and that that principle. I'm going to attempt to quote it, but if you know, for all you LDS listeners out there, if I get it wrong, please forgive me. As man is, God once was. As God is, man may become. Now, if we take God and fit it within your definition, um, higher, uh, more advanced being, that's what you are saying. Have I got that correct? Yes, and I would say my belief is that there are advanced beings or advanced energies um, that can make up what that can make up what someone believes is as God. I do believe there was creation of the universe at some point in time. I also believe there is no perfection, that we are growing and evolving at all levels at all times. So, it, you know, this is hard, I think, for listeners. I gradually moved into understanding mystical Judaism, which I'm sure you know is called Kabbalah. It's yeah. actually the teachings that Rabbi Abalafi is one of my favorite people to read. I, I do. I, I I love the concepts of Kabbalah because they make sense to me. We know that the the one that was called Jesus, and that was not his name, as maybe a lot of people know. That's a Greek name that was given to him after the crucifixion. His right. name was Yeshua. Um, he was trained in the mystical um, early early. Uh, what would be Kabbalah today in that and early tradition. And I'm going to have tradition. to cut you off, and I yep. hate it. I hate it. You're right. <laughs> Remember where we are, okay? We're I glad will. you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at eldon at eldontaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments on the show, and that's a great way for you to participate. And we'll be right back after this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment. With Elton Taylor. If you haven't yet read Mind Programming, you're in for a real awakening. Like the red pill, ignore the book at your own peril. Here's what author Angelina Hart had to say about the book. Mind Programming is a brilliant expose on how we've become unconsciously enslaved to that which we haven't understood. Eldon Taylor exposes and explodes the old world view of fear and lack that is generated direct and indirect manipulation of our minds without our awareness or permission. With well-earned insight, he offers proven pathways of self-empowerment that entrain our consciousness towards the model of unity and abundance that negates the survival paradigm. In a period when fear has reached a frenzied pitch, Taylor shines a brilliant spotlight to dispel the darkness. Get your copy today at fine bookstores everywhere or online from Amazon. Barnes and Noble or Books a Million. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. 
That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. We've been chatting with Dr. Linda Backman about her life, work, and books, The Evolving Soul and Bringing Your Soul to Light. In this half hour, we'll take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or advance your comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook. So I invite you to join me there today. Hopefully I won't lose my voice now in this half hour. All right, Dr. Backman, we just played your third musical choice, The Prayer, performed by Celine Dion and Andre Pacelli. Why this one? (laughs) Well, (laughs) just quickly, I'd say um, one piece is that uh, people are gifted like Celine Dion and Andrea Bocelli. These people are gifted to bring their voices to us. And 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 you might say bless us with their in, incredible capability, but that's not the reason I selected this song. Um, easiest way to put it is I have no doubt that we have higher guidance at all times. We may not listen to it, but we have spiritual guides and guidance. And you know, this song, the prayer, talks about grace, and I see higher guidance as grace. It's a matter of listening to how we're guided, what we're led to do, even if it doesn't seem logical. And I'll just add from something that happened, which most people, certainly in the United States and maybe around the world, um, listened, um, I'm not, this is not a political statement, listened to the President of the United States last week 
um, saying amazing grace. And what I believe he was saying is um, that we have grace when we live our truth, just as um, the the African-American person who wrote that song, Amazing Grace, sort of lived true to his principles, lived his truth, and was transparent about it, and was ultimately a freed slave who wrote that song. So I believe we have higher guidance. That's what where that the prayer and grace comes from for me. Wonderful. You were before the break explaining. Well, it seemed to be some passion indeed about Kabbalah. Do you want to pick it up? Sure. Um, well, the basics for those people that don't understand um, Kabbalah. Um, Kabbalah is about living in body and living in spirit simultaneously. It's about being in the bodies that we have in our life today, living our karma and our dharma, at the same time living from our highest self or our soul self so that we can do both simultaneously. And that's what Kabbalistic practice um, teaches us to do. The forerunner of Kabbalah, and honestly, you know, Jewish people don't own the market on Kabbalah. People understanding mystical belief that we're a soul living one life to the next, coming to evolve as we as we come into body each time is does not belong to Kabbalah. It belongs to many mystical traditions. Um, the one called Jesus, whose name was Yeshua. He was trained as a boy. This can be tracked historically. He was trained as a boy in um, an Essene community in the northern part of Israel in what is today Haifa. Um, It's the only Essene village where men and women were allowed to teach and men and women were allowed to come for learning. He believed in all these mystical concepts, and that's part of what he taught in his his work. I, I believe that um, Yeshua, you know, was, is a soul like the rest of us who'd had past lives prior to his life um, that we know, um, you know, more commonly um, as Jesus. Right. Interesting. Very interesting. Let's turn to your book. Thank you. First of all, I want to I want to make sure that I express this for your willingness to discuss some things that, you know, uh, can be controversial, and for your candor, and, and thank you for you know taking the time, dedicating as much as your life as you have to the investigation. When we look at your book, Doctor, you set out twelve elements to spiritual evolution. Uh, do you want to unpack those for us? Sure. Um, there, twelve. Twelve is a lot, so I'll unpack them as. As much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Um, One, I'll start with one that I think is incredibly important. They're all important, but I'll start with the notion um, of intuition. So many of us think, oh, you know, I'm not intuitive. That's James von Prague or that's, you know, some capable, you know, channel or medium. And yes, of course, someone like James von Prague or here in Colorado, we have a lovely person that I know quite well, whose name is Rebecca Rosen, very, very capable channel and medium. 
yes, they are, these are people that have practiced their intuition, um, you know, repetitively. But um, I came to discover, again, in my later 40s, that I had intuition and that I needed to use it. So essentially, intuition is trusting that we have uh, the capability of getting information through mental images, through emotions, through body sensations, through hearing. Most importantly, and being a very left-brain person, I had to learn this, that my intuition commonly works through thought, that it's like if, if to just make it simple for the listeners, if if you as a listener, you know, three times in one day, someone you haven't spoken to in a day or two or a month or a year, if they keep coming to your mind, text them, email them, call them, and say, hi, I was thinking about you today. How are you? Because I believe that's a sign. The, the repetitive thought about someone is a sign um, that there's need to connect with them. Other, the other of the 12 elements are the belief that we come into body lifetime to lifetime to grow as a soul. And sometimes we accomplish what we came into body to accomplish. Sometimes we don't. My understanding that unless, to go back to something we said earlier, unless we're really committing some horrible, horrible act, we're given almost an infinite amount of time to progress. Next piece of the 12 is what I've already referred to as higher guidance. Right. I believe we're guided every moment, every day of our life. We're the ones that don't listen. Our, you know, our guides, our guardian angels, they don't walk away from us. We tune them out. Um, and so listening, whether it's um, a loved one on the other side that people uh, there are many of us that sense um, communication from grandparents, spouses, whatever. Loved ones on the other side can be part of our guiding team. Okay? Okay. Um, seven Tell soul us about ray. the seven soul ray. There you go. Yeah. Seven soul ray archetype is a, it actually probably would take a bit more time to, to share about and um People are, uh, if they pick up my book, The Evolving Soul, there's a chapter about um, soul archetypes. I'm always willing to accept emails and questions in that way. The basic concept of the seven archetypes is that our soul has a an archetypal or a signature style that does not change lifetime to lifetime that orients us toward certain actions. In other words, I can easily use my husband Earl as an example. He is a Ray 5 soul. His orientation is to put together logistics, strategy, plans. A a warrior isn't just a warrior that becomes a soldier and potentially kills people. A warrior is someone who makes things happen, like structuring a plan, whether it's a family trip or a business or an organization. So if people take a look at seven soul rate archetypes and have some questions, um, I won't promise to get back to them immediately, but I am totally um, open to receiving um, emails. I also have a Facebook page. Um, So I actually opened up 
so I can remember all 12, taking a look at them. Pre-birth life agreement is number five on the list. Essentially, what that says is we plan our lives in advance. Do we always have free will? Absolutely. But we do create a plan. Um, I believe it was set in motion, for instance, that I was going to meet the person that is Earl in this lifetime. But whether I chose to work out a life with that soul was completely um, of my choosing. Evolving through relationships. I think relationship is one of the best, if not the best, means of learning and growing. Other people are our mirrors. Other people are our support people. Um, quick example, my, my lovely mother died about a year ago at age 93. She was not an easy personality. Most people would have agreed she was kind of a tough nut. <laughs> I ultimately made peace with my mother. I am so glad I did. I learned a lot by having to push back on my mother. I learned how to find a sense of self within me and not let her um, tell me what my sense of self would be. So I honor and, and, and thank her for that. Um, next one, simultaneous reincarnation through soul splits. Again, it would be a long conversation. We as souls, have the ability to be in more than one body simultaneously, particularly when we are more experienced versus less experienced as a soul. We come into body in more than one body simultaneously to evolve faster and to hopefully affect evolution on the planet in a greater manner. Lives on Earth and in other dimensions. I have no doubt because my clients go there spontaneously at times. This is not the only place there is life on earth. And I think if we think that, we're being a little bit, you know, egotistical to think there's only life on earth. There is great wisdom in other places. Many souls in body today bring the advancement of their, you might say, their their lifestyle or their culture, if I can use those words, from other places. Learning through attachment and detachment. I think we have to attach in order to detach. And so sometimes we connect with someone. Maybe it's in a marriage, for instance. We learn, we grow, it might work, it might not work. We, we are intended to learn through that relationship. Sometimes then we have to detach. But we can't detach without attaching first. And I, you know, I'm really boiling these down to little brief right. comments for the right. sake I of mean, the audience. Actually, for our, for our audience out there, I've read this book, and every one of these points are fleshed out very well throughout the book. You're really just getting a chapter headline. Exactly. Please continue. Well, I mean, okay, I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I, you're, you're in charge of the time, so just stop me. Um, so um, third to the last, purposeful choice of gender, color, and sexuality. There's a chapter, all the chapters are filled with client case material. Again, I don't put ideas in the mind of the client. Um, we purposefully choose to be male or female. We purposefully choose the color of our skin. I also believe 
we choose our sexuality. Now, it's clear, I'm sure, to the to the listeners, <laughs> I'm a pretty liberal person. I don't know how I could be into this work if I wasn't. Um, but there is intentionality to coming into body and having a particular skin color or being from a part of a particular country, being from the southern United States versus the midwestern United States. And so that's all um, intentioned with purpose. Next to the last, caring for our mind, body, and spirit. I don't believe we can evolve if we don't make sure that we take care of the only body we get this lifetime, the only mind, meaning human brain, that we get this lifetime, and then honoring that we are spiritual beings coming in into body and honoring that. Last but not least is, is maybe my favorite, if you will, um, I hate to call it a soapbox, it's not really a soapbox, stepping up now with commitment. I don't believe our planet will progress if each of us doesn't speak up and support whatever you believe in. If you believe, one, one, one uh, orientation that's very important to me is um, litigating protecting and educating about the problem on our planet tied to human trafficking and sex trafficking. So I put some time, some money, some uh, focus um, in my non-work life on this whole topic that needs to be understood more fully, sex trafficking, human trafficking. It's around the corner in everybody's town. Um, And it's a, it's, it's completely a way of taking advantage of children and young people who are not not to be taken advantage of that way. That's a whole long conversation, Eldon. But so no, speaking but up for what matters. Very to you. important one. In fact, I think that's one of the most important. And maybe, and I'm obviously I'm biased here, but I think one of the most important points in your entire book is that you know, we're not here to be passive agents to just kind of go along and imagine the world as being better. We're actually here as agents of action. And we should be committing ourselves to these causes because there's no spiritual growth if indeed I just ignore these issues or I turn my back on them and think somebody else will take care of them and, and so on and so forth. So I think that's that's very admirable. I have my own. My wife has hers. Uh, we encourage that very much from our listening audience. You know, champion a cause and get involved with it, whether it's women for women or, uh, you know, it, it's the sex trafficking you're talking about or it's animal rights or, for that matter, you know, take a look at the GMO issue. You know, <laughs> there are there are so many things out there that we should be aware of, and then we have to choose something to get involved in. And if we'll all do that, well, then we can change the world. It can evolve. So, no, you can get on any soapbox you want when that's your punchline, Doc. <laughs> Now, I have to come back and ask you a couple of quick things. I mean, I could take all your time, but I've also got questions out of the chat room and phone calls. So I'm, I'm going to cheat a little bit here. But you said lives on Earth and in other dimensions. That's one of the, the points that you covered. Um, as human and non-human, question mark? Boy, 
Okay. Human and non-human. So that yeah, do we have incarnations maybe as dolphins uh, on another okay. planet, uh, or you know, as other species in other domains? Um, my best way of answering that, and that I, I was wondering if the the question was, um, do we evolve from animals? So. Um, well, that too. We let's take that. Let's just pick it up there because, for example, there are many religions believe in transmigration. We evolve right. up, and we could evolve down. You know, the Sikhs believe that we go through every form of existence before we reach the highest level of humanness. So, what say you, Doc? Well, you know, I'll answer it again from from client after client. I have not uncovered through my clients the notion that we evolve from animals, that we sort of work up the chain, if you will. The the only species of animals that I think potentially, um, when we're human, we may have existed as is that, that species that we call cetaceans, whales, dolphins, porpoises. I think there's the yeah. possibility that we could have incarnated as a cetacean. Other than that, on Earth, I don't have information coming from clients. Again, over I may next year learn something new, but over the last 22 years, I don't believe we evolved from other animals. At the same time, when we have lives elsewhere, planets, star systems, and interdimensional lives as well where there isn't density, um, sometimes we have form, sometimes we don't have form, sometimes we have form that seems a little bit, we might say humanoid, other times the form looks, you know, when when they created Spock as a sci-fi character, mm-hmm. a lot of times I've had clients talk about pointed ears. So somebody, you know, an avatar. I, I So beings on other planets, intelligent beings on other planets, don't necessarily come in human bodies. All right, you know... <laughs> I wish we had more time. You used to have an hour show, and then we fought hard to get a two-hour show. And now I think maybe we need to have three hours, because when you get a guest like you, we could just go on, you know? But what I do want before we get out of the show today is I want you to take a few minutes, uh, well, a minute at least, to share with our listening audience how they can reach you, how they can learn more about you, learn about the courses or the online classes that you make available, um, and, and where to get your books, etc. So please give us that information. Okay. Okay. Well, my website, again, is Raven, like the bird, R-A-V, as in Victor, E-N, Raven Heart, the heart in your chest, ravenheartcenter.com. There people can um, find my book. They can find regression training classes. Some are teleconference, so they can be taken um, anywhere. Some are on-site in Colorado. And then I guide past life regression, between life regression, and spiritual mentoring. Some of that work can be done by phone. Some of it needs to be face-to-face. I travel about 50% of the time. So I work in Colorado um, when I'm home, but I travel to many different parts of the United States, also about once or twice a year out of the country. Again, I hate to cut you off, but we're just out of time. Okay. RavenHeartCenter.com. 
Thank you for your work, Dr. Backman, and for your willingness to share it with us. We've come to the end of another hour or episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends, let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.